We begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, this wonderful Sunday. The average American will have as many as 13 different jobs in their lifetime. So now you're all, you're all counting in your head, aren't you? Okay. I, worked at, I worked at Hardee's for about a month, that counts I think as one, right? Um, so thinking through in your own head, does that seem about accurate? About 13 different vocations, different jobs, different tasks you will do on average in your lifetime, right? It seems like a lot to me, maybe to you too. But the reality of it is, I think we understand that on some level, right? Um, that the things that we do, the tasks that we're asked to do, and even the tools that we're asked to use in those tasks, that's actually going to change quite a bit in your life. Now, you might be in a different setting right now. You may be in the midst of a career uh, that has spanned lots and lots of years. But here's a not-so-secret secret. There will be a day when you don't do that anymore. <laughs> right? My grandpa Weiss uh, found that to be true. So maybe some, I don't know if any of you know this, but uh, my grandpa, so my mom's father, uh, was a Lutheran pastor as well. So my dad was, but then my grandpa was as well. Um, But the truth is, I never knew Grandpa Ed uh, as a pastor. I was too little. Like I didn't, I knew that he had been a pastor, but I didn't know him. I'd never hear, I never heard him preach a sermon Um, I I never saw him in front of a congregation. I never saw him at a local congregation. Uh, I only knew him as Grandpa Ed, and I knew him by the vocation or the profession that he actually had after he was a pastor. Do any of you know what these tools are used for? And it ties into what vocation or what profession he did after he was done being a pastor. Any guesses? Yeah, I heard someone say, yeah, upholstery, yeah. Yeah, these are upholsterer tools. Um, You don't want to have to say the word upholsterer too many times in a sermon. Um, But these are upholsterer tools. Um, And that was the most fascinating thing for me as a kid. When I would go to see Grandpa Weiss, uh, I would go out into his shop, and the entire walls were just lined with tools in the shape of things that I had never seen in my entire life. Right? And my dad, my dad uh, fixed things. My dad had his own shop and things like that. My dad did a little bit of woodworking. But when I went into my Grandpa Ed's upholstery, upholstery when I went into my grandpa's shop, <laughs> the walls were lined with tools that like, I, I had no idea what they were used for. Right? Uh, leather awls and punches and scrapers and huge uh, um, shears, right? Scissors bigger than, than you've ever seen before. In fact, in my shop, in my garage, um, there's lots and lots of odd-looking tools. And on any of those odd-looking tools, it says E. Weiss, right? Ed Weiss is marked on it. Now, I don't know the story. I don't know why my grandpa... Uh, um, I know that he had, he had retired from ministry, but he hadn't retired from life and doing things, right? Uh, he had retired from ministry, but he wasn't content just to s- sit on a beach and, and sip a Mai Tai and read a book. He kept his hands busy. Now, I don't know why my grandfather, who was a lifelong pastor, chose to become an upholsterer in his retirement and as long as I knew him. But here's the really fascinating thing about it. He loved it. 
I think on some level, he probably loved it as much as he loved being a pastor. He loved working with his hands. He loved creating. And at the core of it, I think he actually loved helping people. <laughs> Restoring chairs, um, bringing back pieces that people had had in their, in their house, right? And be able to see the smile on their face when he was able to deliver it to them. Now, which vocation was closer to God or more precious in God's sight? His life as a pastor and as a missionary or his vocation of an upholsterer as he grew old? Yeah, it's kind of a trick question because neither one was greater than the other, was it? It was simply just a different role. And the reality of it is, is that God used my grandfather as a pastor in that role with the, the tools that he had, but he also used him just as well as an upholsterer. Today we get to look at the very same thing. So we're going to pull this text of Jesus calling his disciples, and I think on the very surface of it, and certainly this is a part of it, right, where we talk about uh, um, public ministry, right, where we talk about missionaries, where we talk about, about uh, um, asking pastors, evangelists, missionaries to go out and to share God's word in a full-time way. But it's about so much more than that, isn't it? Because actually that's a very small slice of how God shares the truths of his forgiveness, his life, death, and resurrection. Truth is, he uses all of you. In each and every one of your unique mission settings, in your unique vocations, any one of the 13 that you will have, God has called us, he's called us to leave our nets and to be fishers of people. And so today, that's what we want to look at. We want to say, what, what does that actually mean for me in my daily living, right? Not just what did it mean for the disciples, but what does it mean for me? What does it mean for you as a believer, as a disciple, as a follower of Christ? And so that's going to be our theme this morning. Uh, simply leave your nets and Jesus is going to walk us through uh, the the. Uh, as he calls his disciples um, and speaks to us as well this morning. So, uh, so before we get into our text, maybe just a little bit of historical setting of what is taking place in our text here. Um, Jesus, uh, at, at the beginning of our text, we know that Jesus had become aware that John the Baptist had been put in prison. And so in pretty short order, John the Baptist was going to be beheaded. He was going to lose his life. And uh, on some level, this is exactly how it was meant to be. John the Baptist was called the forerunner of Christ. His job was, was to prepare the people for Jesus' ministry, for Jesus' arrival. John had done that. He did that, done that wonderfully. But at the beginning of our text, we hear that Jesus has heard that John has gone to prison. And so it's a little bit interesting, what is Jesus' reaction he then goes out into ministry. Specifically, he leaves Nazareth and he goes to the Sea of Galilee in a city called Capernaum. So on some level, he almost makes Capernaum his, his new headquarters, so to speak, right? Uh, lots and lots of Jesus' parables, lots of his miracles, lots of his healing um, took place in and around the Sea of Galilee. So you can see a few of the pictures here. Um, and it was a, it was a thriving uh, economic zone within Israel at that time. So if you would have said, you would have said that Jerusalem was the hub uh, of religious activity, right? That this was where, where uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees and the leaders of Jerusalem lived, you might have said that that was where Jerusalem was, but the seat of commerce 
in large part, right? The place that was the most diverse, the most cosmopolitan, the most... Um, um, the place where more people traveled to and through in Jerusalem, or in Israel rather, was around the Sea of Galilee. And you can kind of guess why. Sea of Galilee, someone estimated that um, at that time, I don't know if it's still true today, that there are as many as, as 20 to 30 different species of fish in the Sea of Galilee. And so, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee was a thriving fishing community. Jesus' disciples were a part of it. What's kind of fascinating is um, we get kind of little bits and pieces about the disciples' vocation or their job as fishermen. We get a sense that actually they were probably pretty good at it. Now, I'm, we, don't, we don't want to speak too far and speak too much into it, um, but they had, they had others that they worked with. Uh, they had a small business. They had people that relied on them, right? Um, they, they were able to not only take care of their families, but take care of employees that worked for them, right? Um, and their extended family. So on some level, these were fishermen who were good at what they did. Now, we don't know their background. Were they third-generation fishermen on the Sea of Galilee? Maybe. We don't know, right? But we do know that they were good at it. And presumably, they enjoyed it. And in fact, when Jesus and our text takes place today, they are actively doing it. They are working that job, taking care of the people they love, taking care of the people around them. In our text today, Jesus has a different idea for them. He's going to call them to leave their nets and to follow him. And so today, that's where our text takes place. On the Sea of Galilee, Jesus calling some of his first disciples. So, Let's jump into our text. Uh, there's going to be three points that we're going to go through today. Uh, so our, our theme is leave your nets, but we want to talk about um, Jesus' calling to leave our nets is distinct, it's directional, and it's durable. And I'll explain a little bit what each of those mean, but, but that it's distinct, it's directional, and it's durable. Okay? Okay. So let's look at the text. Uh, you can read along with me if you'd like. It'll be on the screen or it's in your bulletins as well. Um, and for our opening, opening text here, I want to read verses... 15 through 17, and then we're going to grab the very last verse of our text today as well, verse 23, because I think those kind of bookend um, where we're starting and really upon which everything else hinges for the rest of our sermon. So uh, verses 15 through 17, and then also verse 23. It says this, Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Okay? And then verse 23, Jesus says this, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So, um, at the beginning of our text, we talk about what Jesus was doing and what was he doing? Literally preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Verse 23 finishes that off and says, this was distinctly good news for a people that were living in darkness. Okay. So what are we talking about here? Um, Jesus is going to call his disciples to do and to share the very same thing but at the very beginning, we've got to understand exactly what they're being called to share. What was the message? What was, what was the, if you put it in like, like um, earthly terms, what was, what was Jesus' vision? What was his mission? What was, he, what was he asking of these disciples? What is he asking 
of us. But really, it takes place in these words and specifically that word, good news. So you've heard that before. Uh, it's actually the Greek word oiangelion, and it's the word we use for gospel. So good news. This is Greek, kerixita to oiangelion, which means preach the good news. Can any of you guess where that is painted? This is an unfair question for me to ask. I'll tell you where it is. This is the entrance into the seminary chapel where I was trained as a pastor. Now, does that seem like a, an appropriate motto to enter into a seminary that is training men to share the gospel full time? I think so, right? Kerixita to oiangelion, share the good news. That's what we were trained to do. That's what I was trained to do as a pastor. But here's the really fascinating part about it. Jesus uses the very same word in our text here today and actually throughout the New Testament, that word oiangelion, which is good news. And that's where we start. In fact, that's where we have to start. Each and every one of us as believers start and finish with that word oiangelion, good news. Because when we start talking about vocation, when we start talking about our calling, what does God want me to do? What, what does he expect of me? What am I supposed to do with my life, in my life, with the people around me? All of it eventually comes back to Oyangelion. Preach that good news. Now, here's the reality of what that good news is. It's actually not good advice. It's actually not good morals. It's actually not good patterns of living. It's actually not good, reasonable, intellectual answers to questions. Now, it's good news. Why is that? Because it's slightly different than any of those things. And here is our first point of what makes your calling, what makes Christianity distinct. It is primarily and essentially Good news, not good advice, okay? It is good news, not good advice. Now, don't get me wrong. Is there some good advice that you will find on the pages of Scripture for your everyday living? Absolutely. <laughs> but at the heart of it, what Christianity is about, what Christ is about, what his ministry was starting with in our text here today was about good news. And what specifically was that good news that Jesus lived perfectly, that he gave up his life sacrificially on the cross, and that he rose again. The good news that we are to share, the good news that has changed our hearts from darkness to light, is not good advice, it's not good morals, it's not good patterns of living, but it is nothing short of salvation, that our sins have been forgiven and washed clean, not because of who we are, what vocation we're in, what number of jobs we are in of those 13, right? Not how many people we've helped, not, not how, how um, good our life may look or how disastrous it may look at any given time. At the heart of Christianity, at the heart of what changes hearts is nothing less than good news that Jesus died and rose again and you are forgiven because of him. Good news is victory. Good news is forgiveness. And it's always good news. It doesn't change. 
Whether we like it or we don't, whether we, we put our faith and our trust in Christ or we don't, the good news, the objective reality that Jesus died and rose again and sins are forgiven does not change. Oyangelion, it's good news. Where that was used within the Greek world at that time, so not just specifically in the Greek New Testament, uh, was that was oftentimes the word that was used to proclaim victory, right? So uh, um, you think of the, the story of, of uh, the first marathon, right, where the, the, the page comes and he is to declare good news. And what was he declaring? We are victorious, right? The very same thing is true for us as believers. Now, why do we need to start there? Why does Jesus start with that and call his disciples to that? Because I think that there, sometimes there is a little bit of a temptation for us to maybe try to make that good news gooder. Is that a word? I don't think so, but I'm going to use it, right? That we can make that good news even gooder, right? That, we, we, that Jesus and his sacrifice was pretty good, but we've got to add this and that to it, right? Jesus strips all of that away. He says, at the end of the day, it is not your job to win people over. It is not your job to convince people to put their faith and their trust in God above. It is not your job to package Jesus just right so that people will want it or want to open it. On one level, the only thing that God asks of us, that Jesus asked of his disciples and you and I, is to share the good news. That sins are forgiven because of Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And you don't want to know who that was done, with, done to and was shared with first? You. Somebody shared the good news with you. Somebody shared with you Christ, right? And his forgiveness and grace. And it changes our hearts. And it changes our lives. Jesus uses that term from darkness to light, right? That's what the good news does. It changes us from the inside out, right? Okay, so our very first point, the gospel is distinct. And I would make the argument, it is distinct from any other religion, any other philosophy, or any other non-religion that our world has to offer. Within the gospel and within that good news, you are not asked to do more and to work your way to your God above. But your God above took on human form descended, lived his life, and gave it sacrificially for you. So rather than trying to climb the rungs to eternity and hoping that we climbed enough rungs by the time our lives give out, God said, I'm going to come to you in the form of Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That is grace. That is distinct. That is unique. And that is always, always, always good news. Okay? That's the very first thing. That's what Jesus builds on with his disciples and with you and I. The gospel is distinct. Okay? He tells his disciples to leave their nets. How easy do you think that decision would have been for them? Yeah, I don't know that easy, right? Um, um, they had responsibilities. They had people that relied on them, right? They had, they had um, and they were good at what they did, right? Yet Jesus calls them and says, because of this good news, your lives are going to be different. 
I'm going to use you in this specific way to share that good news with others, but you're going to have to leave your nets behind. So how about for you and I? Is he calling all of us to leave our vocations behind and sign up to be pastors and evangelists and sharing the gospel? Not necessarily, right? Not necessarily. But when Jesus says, leave your nets, I think it's a good reminder to us and to ask of ourselves, what are the things that are holding us? <laughs> and I think that's essentially what Jesus is asking of his disciples and he asks of every single Christian, right? So if you think of nets as catching fish, nets also can hold things up. And I think that's a good question for us to ask of ourselves. What are the nets that keep us up, <laughs> that hold us afloat? Right? Is it our careers? Is it our morally right life? Is it, is it uh, um, the success of our kids or our families? Right? Is it the size of our bank account? Are these the nets that are holding up our lives, our hope, and our dreams? I think it's a valid question to ask. And Jesus puts the disciples to it. And to be honest, he does the same for you and I. Because if we primarily are held up by the nets of this world, there will come a time when those nets break. In fact, if you look up the interactions of the disciples with their nets while they were fishermen, um, in most of the instances, do you know what they were doing with their nets? They were fixing them. Yeah, if any of you ever fished, like it's, you're always fixed because it's like around water, things are like they're always fixing nets, right? They're always mending them. It's probably a pretty good illustration for us. If we put our faith and our trust in the nets of this world, there will come a time when they will rot, when they will break, when they will let us down. And so Jesus is simply asking of his disciples and you and I, he's saying, put your faith and your trust in me rather than the things of this world. When you do that, I'll walk with you. Because the, the, the forgiveness that I've given you, right, does not let down. The promises I've made are not broken. So the decision for the disciples, I don't think it was probably easy <laughs> to literally put down their nets. And I am not so naive to say that it's easy for us either. It's difficult. Take a look around the congregation. It's difficult for every single one of us because we would much rather put our faith and our trust in our own abilities, in our own uh, um, earthly blessings, in the things of this world, rather than our God above. Because that means vulnerability. And sometimes that can be scary. But here's the amazing thing. Jesus says he doesn't ask anything less of his disciples or of you and I, simply to put our faith and our trust in him. Which will bring us to our next point here. Click, click. Next slide. <laughs> We're going to read uh, verses 18 through 22. This is the actual calling of those disciples. So. Uh, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Okay, so this is the actual call of those disciples. 
that brings us to our second point. That gospel, leaving our nets, is also directional. <laughs> so we're not just left to kind of mill about, <laughs> but the good news proclaimed in our hearts and to us sends us in a very distinct direction. Jesus called these disciples to do that, to share the good news that sins are forgiven. He does the same thing for you and I. Now, here's the thing that oftentimes comes up when this text is read um, or from the other gospels where uh, it's shared as well. I think one of the things that sometimes comes up when we talk about being called to be disciples of Christ, to leave our nets and follow Jesus, are are, um, sometimes images of exaggerations of what that looks like in our lives. And I think that there there are kind of um, two directions that that can go on a spectrum. The first can kind of be the direction of hypocrisy. Because all of us have known people that call themselves Christians and yet act nothing like it. All of us at times have known someone that shows up on a Sunday morning for church and on Monday is the one that's the middle finger, road rage, angry, to work, treats coworkers terribly and generally are miserable the entire rest of the week. So we, actually, we have a word for that, don't we? We call that hypocrisy. In fact, one of the greatest uh, um, reasons why unbelievers want nothing to do with Christ or with Christianity is because of the perceived hypocrisy that they see in, guess who? Us. Right? Us. So I think that's the one side of it, right? But the other side, I think when we talk about um, being a follower of Christ, maybe we get this picture of, of almost um, fanaticism, Right? That, that if I'm going to be a follower of Christ, that I've got, to find, I've got to find a corner and a soapbox and have a sign on me. Um, and that, that's how you truly follow Christ. That, that, that um, if, if I'm going to be a follower of Christ, I have to do it in a way that is remarkably public, remarkably uh, um, um, kind of in your face and fanatical. I think those are the images that come up when we hear this text and when we hear Jesus call his disciples or call us. But here's the reality. Um, Both of those are exaggerations of who Christ actually is, aren't they? With hypocrisy, it's it's maybe the example of the Pharisees at Jesus' time where they were all about religion and yet their hearts were, he calls them, whitewashed tombs. Their interior was dead. No faith in the promise or in God, right? It was all outward. The other one where we talk about fanaticism, right? where we say, we are going to change the world for Christ, but I'm going to do it in my way, in my time, and in your face, and I'm going to run over as many people as I need to to save the world, right? But the truth is, neither of those actually trust Christ and the good news. Both of those, on some level, are following their their own intentions, their own ideas, and their own direction, rather than following the one that died on the cross for them. Because guess what? Actually following Christ is harder than either of those. It's actually even more difficult, right? Thought, oh, maybe Jesus is going to let me off the hook. He doesn't, actually. It's even harder. Think of the lives of the disciples that they were being called to, and you wonder what was in their mind as Jesus called them. Like, this is going to be awesome. Like, we're getting momentum. Like, we're taking over Israel. Like, this is going to be great, right? Um, Jesus is going to, he's going to lead us. People are loving us. He's healing people. Like this is, sign me up. 
But we know the reality was different, wasn't it? That the disciples would be hunted down, persecuted, the vast majority of them would be martyred for their faith. You look at Christ's own life. (laughs) This was not a bed of roses, right? He had some earthly popularity and that quickly evaporated until he was falsely tried, killed on a cross. So following Christ, I would argue, is much harder than hypocrisy or fanaticism. It's actually patiently, willingly, lovingly living our lives in thankfulness for who Christ is, for that good news, and conforming our actions, our words, and our thoughts to him, rather than trying to conform him to us. Okay? So it's absolutely directional, right? This call of Christ. The direction is to him, to Christ, over and over and over again. Okay? So, distinct, directional, and to our last point as well. Go right to the next one. Verse 23 says this. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So we kind of end where we began with that word oiangelion, that Greek word good news, right? Uh, that Jesus died and that sins and that he rose again and that sins are forgiven. Uh, it has been described at times as the red line of the gospel throughout the pages of scripture from the Old Testament to the end of the New Testament book of Revelation, we see the red line of the gospel promise that that which is broken, God is going to fix and the promises he makes, he will keep. And he kept those in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And so as you read through the pages of scripture, talk about this red line of the gospel, a red thread of the gospel. And it is simple as this, that you are forgiven because of God and Christ's sacrifice for you. Okay? I heard an illustration. Uh, I read it in a commentary. The commentary was referencing another guy uh, who used it as an illustration. And then I tweaked it and made it my own illustration. So I'm not sure how to give proper copyright attribution to all of that. Um, But I'm using the illustration today and it's hanging above your head. Okay? So we're talking about what does it mean to live a life, no matter what vocation you have, that follows Christ. Um, I think maybe this works and is a simple and yet difficult thing to grasp a hold of. Red thread of the gospel, red line of the gospel, following Christ is nothing more and nothing less than following that line all the way through your life until God opens up the gates of heaven and welcomes you in. It is nothing more and nothing less than knowing that at the end of that cord, that thread, that line, Jesus Christ is there. Now, everything in between is what's a little bit difficult, isn't it? Because we call that life. So being a follower of Christ and living life in this world are difficult. What never changes is the good news and the fact that Christ is at the other end of it. So, our red line, our red thread. Each of you are going to be a part of this, by the way. You didn't know you were sitting in certain areas, but okay. But we grab a hold, be a follower of Christ, you grab a hold of that line and you simply follow it. And yet sometimes it doesn't look exactly like God knows what he's doing, does it? Because I've got plans, I've got directions. If God gets on board, 
then I'm on board with him. But when life throws curves in and changes in direction, loss of health, loss of loved ones, loss of a job, God forbid God takes me and I follow that line to a place where I can't even quite see where it's going, right? I think that's when it becomes hard as a follower of Christ, isn't it? As we, as we have the ideas and thoughts and vision for our life and what it is meant to look like and at times when it does not look that way. And so the temptation is to let go, to walk away, I'll find my own path. Yet Jesus encourages us, keep following. He says, I'm at the other end of that. I'm here with you the entire time. So maybe it's a change that you didn't like, you didn't want, you didn't pray for, right? Maybe throw us off of our line. Maybe it's just the knots and the difficulties of what it means to live as a human being in this world. (laughs) And this one is going to represent relationships because they're not easy, are they? And living as a follower of Christ, it becomes difficult between husbands and wives, between parents and children, between you and your neighbors and the people you know in your community, between you and your coworkers, the people that you live and work with, there are times when you're following that line and you are so deep into that knot and into the pain of it and into the struggle of it that you are not sure that there is another end to it and that there is ever going to be a way out. And if you've ever felt that way, you're not alone because all of us have. Where we've come up against knots in the road, in our path, that we simply cannot even conceive how God is going to take us through this or for what good God could possibly use something like that in our life or in the life of others. We've all been there. What does God tell us? I'm going to use it. I'm going to use it for not only your good, but I'm going to use it for the good of people around you and I'm going to use it for the good of those that you could not have even conceived of being good for. And so we keep following, right? Following that line as a believer. But I think sometimes there are times when we would rather just take on our own path. So, Marilyn, you pick the unlucky seat where the red line drops down too. <laughs> you don't have to do anything, but just know that this is not personal, Marilyn. <laughs> Because I think we follow that line and we're happy to follow it until and unless our own thoughts, our own intellect, and our own ideas and path are different. Until and unless maybe we get so wrapped up in ourselves and the things of this world that we cease to know where that line was or why we ever had a hold of it in the first place. Yet, Jesus doesn't let go of us. He keeps a hold of it, like he, he never lets go of the end of that line. And we keep following it. And where it leads is to the cross and to eternity. And I don't know where on this line your 13 jobs landed. But I do know that at every single point, whether you could see the outcome or you couldn't, no matter what job you were working or what calling you had at that moment, that Christ was at the other end of it and that he was patiently, consistently walking with you and guiding you towards eternity, heaven. Because that's the point of Christ and his ministry. Holding on to that and walking that path, 
That's not easy. But you want to know what? God puts us together for a reason. Because you're sitting in a congregation full of people that feel that same pain, that same difficulty of what it means to be a follower of Christ. How hard it can be at times. And so he gathers us together to encourage one another, to love one another, to walk with one another. Most importantly, we know the end of it and along the path is Christ and the good news that sins are forgiven. What's the impact of those early disciples having been called? Yeah, most of the world knows who Jesus is, right? right? They were sent out into the world and so are you. No matter what profession, no matter what vocation, no matter where God has planted you right here and right now, your mission field, you are fishers of people. Your mission field is unique. There are people that you can share Christ with that no one else in this congregation will have the opportunity to do so with. It's an incredible privilege. It's an incredible honor. Here's the beautiful thing about it. Your job is not to win them. Your job is simply to proclaim that good news. Sins are forgiven. A light has dawned in the darkness. On account of Christ, you're loved, and eternity is yours. Amen.